BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm doing an intro because I can't believe I'm talking to one of my business heroes, Mark Ford, author of Ready, Fire, Aim. The guy has helped build over 100 businesses, and he describes it all in these podcasts here. I also recommend people check out markfordbook.com to see what he's working on. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Okay, so, so in the cubicle, you, this was an, this right. is a good okay. example, though, where he's being an entrepreneur, and you were talking about companies that where you sh- you're either the type, in the type of company where you could be an entrepreneur or you should leave and find one. But now, what if I also want to make that transition to entrepreneurship? And you're a big believer in information products, so products that you could make relatively cheaply and market even relatively cheaply, and that's a good way to kind of get your feet wet in terms right. of entrepreneurship. right. right. But, well, but, uh, but again, I'm in the cubicle and I'm scared because right. I've never done that before. Well, it just so happens I wrote a whole book for that person called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. I, I myself was never an entrepreneur per se. I was an entrepreneur. I created businesses within businesses. And then while I had businesses and I had, you know, I was making more money than I needed, then I would invest in other businesses and start other businesses with my partner or other partners and so on and so on. Um, you know, my thing is, you know, never leave your day job until your the income from your side job is equal to your day job. That that was my exact technique when I was at HBO. Well, there you go. So, great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, what I would say is, I, I actually we, you know, um, it's this is a real challenge. You know, it's easy to tell people, motivate people, but how do you actually help people go beyond that? And that's what I've been doing since. Uh, about three or four years since we started this business called uh, uh, Palm Beach Research Group, and my contribution to it, I agreed to go into it if I could focus on uh, creating wealth in the non-stock bond, non-financial areas. Which is really important because stocks and bonds aren't going to change your life if the economy is completely changing. And that's what's happening. And, you know, they do go up and down, and when I decided, one of the decisions I made after I decided to get wealthy was I, I had this thought one day. I said, wouldn't it be cool if every day I got just a little bit richer? And I never, because you, you got to remember, back then, I, we were already in the investment business, publishing business. Even though I had no interest in it, and uh, I, I was watching what was going on, and I was seeing that a lot of people were making money, losing money, especially people that were doing penny stocks, people investing in mining stocks. and There were so many volatile aspects of the market, and 
said, what way is that to make money? So I thought, what if I just got richer every day? And that was one of the first things I said. I will do whatever it takes. Even if it's just a nickel richer, I will get richer every day. I never want to get poorer. And so I developed all these strategies. One of them was multiple incomes. You have to have multiple incomes. And the other is I kept a very minimum amount of money in volatile uh, investments like stocks and so on. And it, it, in fact, the only thing I really did in stocks was uh, index funds, enrolled index funds. Uh, anyway, so, so uh, my, my whole approach was, um, and my approach for, pe my recommendation for people who want to get outside of that uh, to do their own is to keep your day job, just work extra hours. You do have those extra hours and, and you, can, you can be better than 80% of the other employees working 25 hours smartly a week. And uh, if, even if you give you 40 hours, you'll be in the upper 10 percentile. And then, then you know, what I did is I worked 80 hours a week. You know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm dying to talk to Tim Ferriss, but and I'm sure he doesn't work. I'm sure, I don't think he's ever worked a four-hour work week in his life. But, um, you know, that's what you have. You do have that, those extra hours. I, I agree with you, but I think what he did was he figured out once his, once his first business was rolling, he then fired the difficult customers and outsourced everything. Right. He said he, he told me he originally wanted to call his book the two-hour work week because on his original business, that's all he was working. But he was then working the eight hours on marketing right, right. the books. No, I think he's a very smart guy, and I think he, he I, I, I've listened. Since I started listening to you, I started listening to him, too. I did feel a little competitive, so I wasn't going to listen. But he's a very smart guy. He makes a lot of sense. It's a good, look, it's a good angle. I mean, look, the book sold like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> How could I, Mr. Marketing, be be upset with him for, um, for gilding the lily a little bit. Right. Anyway, um, I, I think you use those extra hours. And the reason why I tend to focus on um, information marketing, I started doing this when I started writing Early to Rise as Michael Masterson at, in the year 2000. And I went through all the information publishing areas, all the ways you can do that. And I was writing stuff and nobody was writing it. That whole market is flooded with experts and pseudo-experts right now that teach people how to do that. And we have, in our program, we have about uh, 14 or 15, maybe 18 information publishing, uh, uh, pu just publishing, advisory, information-related businesses that you, people can do on their own. You know, the, it's called, um, it's called uh, the Extra Income Project. And uh, what, what it was, was I, uh, I would write an essay of about uh, three or 4,000 words, sometimes 5,000 words, where I would, I would describe from my point of view, these are all businesses I've been in or, uh, or owned or uh, managed or consulted with. And I would describe how the business looks and feels, but they were all businesses that you could start for a reasonable amount of money, you can make a reasonable amount of money, and so on. And well, What's an example? Well, you could, be, you, know, the most, you could become a copywriter. I started a business teaching people how to be a copywriter many years ago because it was a big... Uh, a big problem finding finding copywriters in our industry, and uh, we have a, a a business called American Writers and Artists Inc. that uh, does nothing but that. They have thousands of students, and they, uh, you know, Agora probably hires a hundred writers, copywriters a year, and I've yet to meet one in the last five or six years that wasn't at one time a student of this business. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, you can go into the business of teaching people how to be copywriters, or you can become a copywriter yourself. And, uh, you know, it, it takes some time to learn how to be a copywriter. And just to be clear, copywriting is kind of this specialized ability of writing 
that is extra persuasive, you might say. Yeah, well, I would say that, I mean, technically what it is is writing advertising copy uh, and of any kind. And most people don't realize that that's actually a skill. I would say the average person doesn't know that there's a difference between, you know, there's a, right. a, a special skill required. Right. Yeah, in fact, um, when we started this business, we got all kinds of hate mail by copywriters who, who, who because I, I had by that time trained 100 people to be copywriters personally. And so uh, we were saying, you can, we'll, I'll teach you how to be a copywriter. And they were very upset because, you know, of course, they thought that they were Hemingways and Fitzgeralds and so on. And they were just, they were hard, you know, far from it. I mean, the, the level of uh, literary quality in advertising copy is uh, very seldom very high. It is occasionally David Ogilvy and people like that, but generally speaking, it's, it's quite low. But the, uh, the persuasion techniques are pretty, it can be taught, it can be learned. And, uh, and I have taught guys that are literally um, uh, basically illiterate uh, to be pretty good copywriters. So there are skills and you can learn them and there are plenty of people out there that understand them and and so uh, you can learn that, and you can, uh, that program is to, if you go into direct response advertising writing, uh, particularly if you want to write about investing or, or natural health, you can easily make $100,000, $150,000 a year. There are plenty of people that, at Agora, we have several people that make, you know, over $500,000 a year, several. And, and, and what they're doing is they're selling what you read. When you, whenever you get an email, like, you know, 500% opportunity potential, uh, click here to right. buy more. I'm, I'm simplifying it right. greatly, right. but uh, that's a copywriter is writing uh, that. And there's a newsletter writer who's writing the newsletter exactly. that's being sold. Exactly, right, right. A copywriter that would try to sell a newsletter by promising 500% is not a very good copywriter, in my opinion. But yeah, that's the idea. But also, I mean, you could, there are all kinds of, you could do, you could be a copywriter for charities, for political groups. You can attach that skill to passions, if to get back to our passion discussion. Do and, political groups realize they need copywriters, or do they just hire oh, anyone? Oh, no, they, they hire the best. I mean, so the, whole, the whole industry, I mean, you know, the whole uh, uh, political world has changed in the past uh, 15 or 20 years because of copywriting. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Obama, part of Obama's great success was from direct mail copy. Uh, the, the Republicans originally mastered it, there was a there's an organization I forget what it's called but um, uh, that that basically was creating all the funding for uh, the, the Republicans and then the Democrats finally decided they would dirty their fingers in it and they they've been raising billions of dollars that way the NRA the uh, any kind of advocacy groups they all use uh, copywriters and if they have money then you're going to make a lot of money if it's a poor group so if your passion is for um, you know, some uh, for missionary work in Angola, you're probably going to have to make a lot of money. But but let's take the political situation. So a pathway might be, okay, I'm sitting at Procter & Gamble. I'm going to find a local candidate. I'm going to learn a copywriting skill and write copy for him. And then I can show other candidates, hey, look, he won. I wrote the copy. And then you could start kind of say, getting 12 candidates as, a, as clients, and now you have a business. Absolutely. In fact, uh, if it's a world that that's that circumscribed as the political world is, or even fundraising, uh, you won't have to tell anybody. If you, if you write a package that works, everybody will know about it. And uh, what generally happens is that, that, you know, that kind of success happens once, that, if you're very good, it happens once every 10 packages you write. Um, and, and so generally people don't have those big hits. But um, 
But if they do good work, they get better and better, and then they get to write higher profile things and, and their compensation. But there's a whole, as I said, we have a whole business of teaching people every, every aspect of it. But that's just one way, it's an obvious way of making money. But you know, you can make, depending on how much money uh, you want to make, you can make, uh, you can make money by uh, buying and selling products online. You can make, you know, as a- Like what? Well, you can, uh, you can make money buying and selling collectibles. There are all kinds of uh, uh, businesses out there. Uh, I had an interest for a while. I, I collect certain things. And I have an interest in, uh, got an interest in cigar lighters, old cigar lighters. And I went online and uh, sure enough, uh, there's a whole market out there. And it, once you, if you know how to become a collector, a dealer, you'll focus in one area, you'll learn what things are worth, You'll, you'll buy them cheaply and sell them. Uh, How will you know to buy them cheaply? Like, won't everybody know oh, there's the, these well, are valuable? Well, the, the margins do get smaller on the internet because, uh, because um, everything's available. You know, it, it's, it's happening to every aspect uh, of the industry. But you have to really focus. You, uh, you have to be able to, um, well, I'll give an example. I was at a, a, a store, a fancy clothing store, and they had these, very cool old books, vintage books out there, coffee table books. And they were gonna, I was gonna pay $180 for it because I was very excited. And then Kathy didn't wanna pay $180 for it. She doesn't like, it's very, so she goes online right away and finds the same book. I, I mean, this is the most obscure book. I couldn't believe it was online. And there were like, 12, there must have been 30 in existence and there were like 18 of them were listed. So there's somebody out there that uh, that knows these type of books, whatever I, I don't know how, how to describe them, and knows them so well that he's going to be out there buying them when people. Obviously, what you're doing in any market is when you're buying and reselling, you have to be smart enough that when you see something that's underpriced, you buy it, and then you sell it at at a markup that they. Uh, when when you're when you're in a market that's beginning where there's a large interest in it, um, and then you, you can make a lot of money. Like for example, if you, if you decide to buy surfboards, uh, vintage surfboards or certain kind of surfboards, when um, you might be able to, a friend of mine, Steve Sugar, you may yeah. know him, yeah. Steve likes to do that. He, he bought up a bunch of them. He had a very interesting uh, theory. He says you buy what, what uh, your generation thought was cool when they were in their 20s or so, and then when they hit their 50s, you sell it. I think it's brilliant actually. And so uh, it's, very, it's a long-term holding. It's strategy. a long-term, yes. It's a long-term. He's a long-term guy. But, uh, but um, anyway, so there, there are, we have like 18. You can be a graphic artist. You can be, a, you can be an editor. We have a, there's a huge demand for editors in our business. We have, I know of four people that are looking for editors right now. They don't know where to find them. We're, we're looking for an editor right now there on, you go. on a project. But the problem is you, you, people need skills, and they need skills in our industry. And so uh, American Writers is now... And start training people to be editors, and then so uh, you can be you can make money as a photographer, not much, but you can make money. We have a program like that. You can make you know you, there's a, there's a business um, uh, there's so many, but um, th this is on the information side. I should I knew I should have prepared myself and brought you a list. No, 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 that's okay. Because what's interesting, like you said, a photographer. What's interesting there is people often ask me, I have five thousand dollars. How should I invest it? And I often tell them. Buy a camera, like a really great camera, and a book, or watch YouTube videos on how to be a good photographer. Mm -hmm. Because all you have to do is like one or two weddings. You've just made your investment back, and now you're going to make three thousand percent on your investment. That's Why a, buy a stock? That's a perfect example. I mean, being a wedding photographer is 
is always in demand. You can be, you can learn to, this is uh, information. Well, I guess, I guess that is information. But, oh, but, but, oh, but then you can write a newsletter on how to be absolutely. a successful wedding photographer. Absolutely, yeah. And because there is knowledge, there's things to be learned there. Um, so we're, we're actually, I, I wrote like 12 or 14 essays, and um, not all of them were, most of them were on the information side. And then Bob Bly, I don't know if you know Bob Bly, he's, he's a, just an amazing guy. He's, he's doing a, a, another 12 of them, so we'll have 24. But I'm also I've asked him to do some that are not information oriented because you know that you know we've got to be honest to be good in the information industry you basically have to be pretty smart you don't have to be brilliant but you got to be a pretty smart person because uh, you have to learn some part of the industry better than most people not better than everybody but better than most people and then you have to learn how to market and so on so uh, there are a lot of people that read our, our publications that I know they're either maybe they're too old or they're they don't have that kind of smarts, and uh, but they can make, they can do fine too. There are plenty of people that get wealthy that aren't particularly brilliant. So I feel committed to teaching people how to how to develop their own um, carpet cleaning business, for example, or um, uh, a business uh, maintaining lawns. You know, you can get very wealthy in, in Delray Beach. There are a thousand lawn services, but probably only two that are any good because they're all terribly managed. Or I have a friend that. So what's like a, what's like the secret of the two out of the out of the hundred? Well, amazingly good service. So in, instead of uh, the secret is that most people that go into that business are really irresponsible people that don't do good jobs, don't know what a good job is. So if you just show up, and show you, up, and, and do a good job, job, talk to your customers, make them happy. I mean, these businesses require less uh, skill in a way, uh, except basic human. Uh, emotional intelligence type skills, so uh, so you can you can do that, or you can develop a specialty. The kind of grass I have here is not common in South Florida, but it's very expensive to maintain. And there are you know there are thousands of these properties from here to Palm Beach, and and you can make a lot of money doing. You can make mo money starting a service, putting up uh, Christmas lights and taking them down every year. You know, I have a friend that his first business he started putting his you know, Guatemalan wife that couldn't speak English. He started a uh, uh, a maid service around her, and he ended up with forty odd maids. So there's there's all kinds of businesses also outside of the information area, but they're all they're all about you know every business has two parts. One is the product, which could be service. So you ask me about one service, just give better service. But then the other sales. The sales part is pretty easy. You know, if for those kind of businesses, what he did is he just went went up to the people's doorknobs and left a, a, a note, but a handwritten note, a nice, not the typical thing. If you, if I said to if I asked you, James, if you wanted to start a lawn service, you, you get the feeling from this place, and you went up to, um, and you wanted to get your first job, somebody to try you out, and you wrote a handwritten note and said, uh, I'm James Altucher, I'm a new in the business, I'm, I'm an honest guy, I'm sorry, I'd like to give you, I'd like to show you what um, my business is, I think I'll, I can do a Make your lawn look twice as good at at ten percent less. If you give me a shot, I'll do it. I'll do your first service for free. If you put that on a thousand homes, do you think you would get a job? Yeah, particularly if I added like, oh, I record. I see that you have this type of lawn in your backyard. Even better, I'm a specialist right. in it. Right. I was in right. Thailand and they had this kind of lawn. Perfect. And, uh, I got to hire you for my <laughs> next. Uh, if we ever get in lawn service together, I got to first learn how to use a lawnmower machine. <laughs> well, but. well, that'll be that'll be our, our that'll be our retirement. Right. <laughs> so there. So the point is, you, you after that, it's just numbers. You know, the 
the, the and you test. Like you might try one type of letter absolutely, here, right. one type of letter absolutely. there, and you see just, what works. The same principles that you're doing. All the whole world, because the internet is going. And through. I can do this while I'm at my cubicle. Like I can go out at night and put the ad, absolutely, you know, yeah, in people's doors, or and, or, or and, send out emails, right. or rent email lists, or whatever. And everybody has a otherwise unemployable friend or relative that you can get to do the actual yeah grunt work while your business is growing. So 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 okay. So I'm in my cubicle. I've come up with an idea that people need. I've come up with a basic technique for marketing it. I'm going to wait until I can equal my pay before I'm quitting. What other, what, what next piece of advice uh, would you give to the, the startup entrepreneur? Well, um, the, the book that you, you looked at last night, uh, Ready Fire Am, is all about that. There's really, um, uh, because I had so... How did you know I looked at that book last night? Because I had said to somebody, I can't believe he's coming. He, this guy interviews Tony Robbins. What am I going to say to him? I'm a little nervous about having this interview. And, they, and Giovanni wrote me back and said, well, maybe he's nervous too. He just asked for your book. So I felt better about no, that. No, but I asked for the Living Rich book, not the Ready, Fire, I know, Aim I know, book. but I said send him the Ready, Fire, Aim book. Okay. Be because I thought that, because to me it's more interesting. The Living Rich book is, um, is, is a good book, but Ready, Fire, Aim is really about this core thing. It's how do you get a business from zero to uh, $100 million? And you know, you know, there was something very interesting about Ready Fire Aim I wanted to ask you about. There's kind of an evolutionary aspect to it. Because you said it, you, you divided up the four types of businesses, zero to one million, one million to 10 million, 10 to 50, and then 50 to 100 and beyond. So, but there's also, that also implies a certain number of people at the business. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, evolutionary speaking, more interesting in the right. sense that we grew from tribes where everybody knew right. each other to, let's say, groups of tribes where you had to, you didn't know everybody, but you can gossip right. about everybody, right. to then kingdoms and civilizations where you had to have a story like, where the best beer in the world, or where the best country in the world. You had right. to have a visionary story right. that, that bonds people together right. so they can work together. Right. And I thought, those, I thought you divided it up in kind of maybe a subconscious way along those lines. Uh, well, no, it was more than subconscious. In fact, I think I did mention it. I, I, was, I was grappling with the idea of whether I should be, uh, divide it up. In, it could have been numbers of people. Uh, I thought I talked about it in that book, but... I, yeah. you, you, said you, you said you thought you could divide it up in terms of numbers of people, and I thought the numbers were specifically almost like evolutionary right. numbers. And you know, there, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, it might have been The Tipping Point, he, he goes into this, uh, this idea, and it's an idea that I always think that he's been reading my newsletters because he... He always comes up with stuff after I do. I, I just want to say, for the record, that this whole... I know it wasn't his idea. He got it from somebody else about 10,000 hours. Yeah, he got that from um, Ander... Some guy from like 1991. Right. I got to find out who that guy is. Because I wrote that essay 10 years before that book came out. My number was 5,000 hours. And this guy, whoever he got it from, probably actually did some research. But I actually... It was very early. It was in 1991. He, he was ahead of me. I did not read his research... Uh -huh. But I was just thinking about how long it takes to, to become good at something. I've completely lost track again. No, no, but uh, oh, so, so does it take 5,000 hours to become good at something? Is that... Well, problem? my rule was it takes 1,000 hours to be competent. My first essay, this is yeah. what I wrote. And, and 5,000 hours to be a master. And if you have a... I realized later, after I wrote that, I changed the essay and said, but if you have somebody that can help you, can teach you and mentor you, then you can knock 30% of that off. Because I realized I was in the business of helping and mentoring people, so I want to give them an incentive to keep reading my stuff. But I think that's roughly true. Yeah, that's a good I point. thought about Spanish, 
Um, I thought about uh, learning the language that I've learned, learning musical instruments, all the experiences I had, different kind of uh, complex skills. And then I thought, you know, I think it applies to everything. It, it, it applied to jujitsu. I learned jujitsu. Anyway, I think it's basically true. I, I don't know. Who knows what it is? 5,000. But the main idea of that is that guess what? Of course, Tim Ferriss knocked it down to four hours. I know, I know. He, he did it again. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I heard him just yesterday. I was listening. He said, you can, you can learn, become fluent in any language. And, well, actually, I, I, he, what he said was true. He said, you can become fluent in language in some number of weeks. And I became fluent in... Uh, in French in uh, 10 weeks, so he's, he's right. Uh, anyway, um, so... Uh, so I'm let's say you get competent at, at business, at doing a business. Right, so we're talking, what are we talking about in general? About build oh, the four, sta the four stages I talked about. Yeah, we talked about something interesting there, which, which was these, uh, how do businesses grow? And, and I try to classify it in terms of dollars only because I thought it would be more interesting for people to start out off with. You know, I'm, I'm going to get it to a million, then I'm going to get it to ten, then... Right, it makes me feel competitive. Right, you right, know, it's fun. Oh, I'm at this right, mark, now right. I'm going to get to that mark. But a lot of business is the number of people. I mean, probably more uh, of the dynamic of a business now it changes depends on the number of people. Because, um, you know, and there have been uh, some number of studies that have done this, but my, my feeling is always you can, only, you can only directly relate to like seven or eight people, six or seven or eight people. And I think Malcolm Gladwell mentioned that. Uh, directly. And the thing about a business is when you're, when you're a business owner, you hire seven people. Those people can be, uh, they only need one skill, uh, primarily the skill of keeping you happy to keep their job. And then each of them is going to hire their own seven people. Now you've got 50 people. The people that you hired, however great you think they are, they may not be skillful at training or teaching or inspiring those other people below them. But at least those other people below them can see you through them because you're. If you get an office of fifty people, they always see the boss, and they see their boss interacting with you. So there's that kind of communication. So the smart people, like I was when I entered that the story I told you, when I sat down at lunch and I said, "Sorry, I'm with that guy." I could do that because there were only fifty people or less in in that office. <laughs> but once you get to the next step, three hundred and fifty, seven times fifty, then you don't see the boss anymore. You don't really know what the core culture is and what's important. And then the whole business can break down. You can be in a political environment and so on. So for me, that, from an owner's perspective of the business, that creates problems. You know, once you're, I could say at 350 people, once you go beyond 50 people, your business develops some real potential problems and challenges. Um, so it, it is partly that. But it's also partly cash because, you know, when, you, when, you're, when that first level, zero to a million, the whole big challenge is learning how to make the, uh, uh, an efficient first sale, how to bring in the customer cost efficiently. That is your number one job. If you don't do that, your business won't work. You can, and and, and you know, 80% of the people when they get involved in business, and even when I read, well, I'm talking about real entrepreneurship, not uh, starting a business that you plan to sell to an internet company. I mean, that, that's not something I know anything about. And that's a whole different there's a different idea there. I'm talking about, well, actually, the sale there is the sale to the internet company. So I guess it would right. apply, yeah. That's your revenue. Right, right. So, but, but from my point of view, a, a more traditional type of company, until you get to a million dollars, 80% of your time has to be spent figuring out how to sell that product. So if it's a lawn service company, it's doing that testing that we talked about, what letter works better, better at hanging on the doorknob or send it in the mail and 
and, and so on, and so that you get a customer efficiently, and then you have cash flow, and cash flow solves all kinds of problems and also gives you all kinds of opportunities, and then your business grows, and then you get to this other threshold where, um, where everything's going quite good, but the business starts to stall at about $10 million. This, this is very common. And it stalls because you have one way of bringing customers in. You have basically one line of products, and you pushed that, that particular monolithic uh, path to its limits, and it's just hard to grow it after that. And so then what you have to do is you have to identify what it is. You're, are you fish or are you fowl? Are you marketing? What kind of products is this? Uh, what are we really doing? And then you start to replicate. So <clears throat> that second stage, the skill that you have to develop there is the skill of uh, innovation and speed. Because um, what you need to do is you have to, you have to replicate these things by innovating different versions of them. But you have to test them very quickly. You, you, you can run out of money very quickly. You have to have a very efficient way of uh, making the business grow without, without losing money. And then the third stage, which um, I think was I, what number I had in that book, but the third stage is when you do have 350 people and your business needs to be corporatized. It needs it because you're draining, even though you're still making tons of money because you've done such a good job on innovating and replicating product, products and promotions. And what you haven't done so well is in, in refining your system. So your IT system is slow. Your accounting department can't bring you a current accounts for two or three months. And, Things are starting to bleed, and so then you got to bring in the manager. You know? and then, you do, then these when the guys start, you know, you can if you're an entrepreneur make the mistake of bringing in people from Ivy League schools. I think that's a giant mistake. Yeah. They're all so anytime I ever hear an entrepreneur that has a business that's at least less than a billion telling me he's hired an Ivy League person, I just know the business is about gone. It means he's run out of ideas, and he thinks these guys actually know something about small businesses. So, uh, so you got to bring in smart people like, like we've been able to do, people that understand how to manage businesses but believe they're responsible for maintaining profits, that don't think and will tell you the truth. And um, so then you, we did that. We've done that in all my businesses pretty successfully. You've got to find the right person to do that that you can trust. At Agora, we have a superb person, Miles Norris, and uh, he understands that part. And so you get that part of your business organized. But then you realize at that part in the, uh, at that time, those bean counters, however necessary they are, they do want to take over the business. The better ones want to take over it even more. We all want to take over everything, right? So then you get to the struggle, which other people have talked about, larger companies have talked about, of how do you maintain a kind of entrepreneurial spirit within the company? And the way we did it at Agora, and I've done it with some other businesses, is by... Um, uh, by uh, Fractionalizing the business, decentralizing the business, and uh, and creating a um, a cooperative but competitive environment where you take your you take your you know what we do is we have different publishing companies that all publish the same uh, the same type of information. There was a time when Bill and I had a lot of discussions about should we we have the franchise model where all the we all our hard money newsletters are going to be here, all our stock newsletters are going to be here or option services going to be men. And then we decided that doesn't work, that what you really need are really good people running these businesses that want to, want to compete with each other. But then you force them, because it's your business, to share certain information, like marketing information. A lot of the trade secrets are not secrets at Agora. We force people, 
And our idea is, it's the same idea that I have about any skill, is we want people to know how people were so successful and whatever their last advertising would have been. Because I want everybody else to learn because I want the whole level to keep going up. And if you're mad at me because I shared that secret, I'm going to say, James, you're smart enough. You'll come up with it next time. We should put out a newsletter about all the secrets, all the campaigns that work. Well, we here's, what, here's what we tried. Here's what worked. Here's I, the percentages. Believe it or not, um, we are just finishing a 900-page book uh, that contains all of Agora's secrets. And I wrote in the introduction that uh, we're, you know, I know everybody outside of Agora is going to have this and hear your secrets and enjoy them because it's not about what was done yesterday. It's about being smart enough to see what was done yesterday and, and do something new tomorrow, something you know, not entirely new, but just new enough. So. Well, you bring that up, too, that you don't always want to create something incredibly new. No. You look at something that's worked over and over and maybe tweak right. it or a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely, just a little bit new. I Which mean, is different than, like, let's say, uh, an approach like Peter Thiel, who wrote Zero to One. He basically says, uh, go from zero to one. Create an entire monopoly that's never been seen before. Uh, it's a little different approach, yeah. but that's kind of the Silicon Valley approach. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, those, I don't know anything about uh, anything other than what I know. And what I know is a certain kind of business that's easy to do, you can do if you're scared, you can do if you're not brilliant, and so on. But I do know this, because I've been in the publishing and storytelling business for a long time. The stories that are we love to hear are not the, are the exceptions, not the rules. So the, the stories about people going again, think about, think about this, the, we want a story about a singer that became successful. All the, the tough times he went through, the rejections and finally, or the inventor, and finally it's invented. Well, for, you know, or the basketball player. I mean, the truth is, for every one of those, there's 1,000 or 10,000 people that failed. I don't want to give people advice that has a 999% chance of failing and a 1% chance of getting on the cover of Time magazine. I'd much rather tell you uh, advice that gives you a much better chance of succeeding and you probably won't get on. You know, and you say advice, but and you say, we, we were talking earlier, and you said you're in the self-help industry, but you're not really. You're in the almost the help-self industry in the sense that you're only talking about things that you've used to help yourself. Right. And you're sh sharing those stories. Right. You're not kind of veering outside of that. No, no. I mean, it would be, you embarrass yourself very quickly the moment you... Believe me, if you give me a couple of drinks, I will veer outside <laughs> of it and I'll embarrass myself. But in a sober state, I try to avoid that. Well, well, let's talk about your, your, your most recent book. I don't know when it's coming out. When is it coming out? Living Rich. Uh, it's actually out, out right now. It just went out. Okay, it just came out. And it's basically about... I, I read the individual essays. And it's basically about... This idea that everyone thinks they need X amount of dollars, but you basically say, why do you need that? Because for X minus Y, you can achieve the exact same lifestyle. And the, and the Y is usually a, a pretty big number close to X. So, so for almost zero, you could, uh, you know, and Tony Robbins has an example of this in his book, Money, where some guy says, my goal is to make a billion dollars. And he thought that was a great goal. And Tony says, well, really, why do you need a billion? And the guy's like, well, I want to buy a private jet. And the private jet, you know, with maintenance costs like $150 million. And Tony's like, you're only going to use that 10 times a year, so you don't need $150 million. You need like 600000 So, okay, now we've just wiped off $150 million of your number. And he goes down the list, and it turns out the guy really just needs somewhere between 5 and $10 million to have what he thought was the lifestyle of a billionaire. Right. And I say just, five, right. 5 to $10 million is quite a bit of money, right. but... You know, what, what's some examples? I think here? you can do it for much less than that. I did. Well, what's the minimal viable number you need to, to live, live the successful life? 
I'm, I, I know that occasionally when you ask Tony Robbins a question, he answered you uh, like a politician by telling you a story that isn't related. I'm about to do this, but I promise I'll come back to it. I want to tell you why I, I, I want to tell you that I was in Africa, living in Africa for two years. I was in the Peace Corps. I was teaching at the University of Chad. I lived in a basically a mud house with cement walls that had uh, water running outside, no hot water, and so on and so forth. And um, I was sitting on the porch, and I was poor. I came from the, you know, Angela Ashes was just ordinary <laughs> to me. Report, you refer to the book in Persuasion, right. great book. Right. So, uh, but by the way, he wrote his first novel at the age of sixty-six. That's right. That's right. Anyway, so. Um, I'm sitting there and it's raining and there's a, you know, this is in the middle of Chad, one of the poorest countries in the world, and I'm living in a mud house and I'm making $50 a month and it's raining and we've got our dog there and of course the street is, I was teaching at the University of Chad, believe it or not, English literature and philosophy. This is really bringing them up by their bootstraps, you know, but anyway, there's a story behind that. But I was sitting there and uh, I was thinking, you know, I, and this is bizarre, I just knew that one day I was going to become rich, you know. And I, I thought to myself, just remember this, no matter how rich you get, you're going to live in a big fancy house one day, but it will not be better than this house. And I've never forgotten that. And it's completely true. You know, and I think we all know this. This isn't anything that's, you know, the quality of your life has, uh, um, no, at a, up to a, beyond a certain level, has nothing to do with how much you make. I remember when I first made over $100,000 that first year after I made that decision, my accountant told me, Mark, you've done it. I go, what have I done? He goes, this is the big time. And this is, 100 maybe was worth 180 today. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you, you, you're as rich as you ever will need to be. And I go, what are you talking about? You know, I couldn't do this. I can't get, you know. He goes, listen, the money that you're earning right now, you can... Uh, live in a nice house, you can drive a nice car, you can send your kids to school, you can go on a vacation, take your ass out to a restaurant. He goes, everything other than that is just the size of a toy. It's just toys and it's the size of a toy. And I thought, wow, that sounds, you know, that, that, that sounds pretty much right. But of course, you know, you say that to yourself and you, you think, well, hell, but, you know, let me experience those big toys. So, so I, you know, I, I, I went through it, and I, I had those big toys and so on, and, and I still look. It's fun to have, to to have those kind of things. But the truth is, and the, I knew it back then, and it's been true now, that the quality of your life has nothing to do with that. And and what's worse is in the American economy, American culture, we're so attuned to that. You know, like every time I watch uh, Sex in the City, I like want to vomit. You know, it's so. It's such a repulsive view. Not that, not that I haven't watched like sixty or seventy episodes, but I did the I, web, I, I did the website for the TV show, by the way. Oh, <laughs> anyway, but this whole materialistic thing is just so. But so, I thought, uh, you know, I what about all these? Because I'm I'm trying to help people create wealth, right? And this is my big promise. So I do everything I can on from the entrepreneurial side, and I. I'm doing, writing about the investments that I'm writing about. I'm trying to cover all bases. But, you know, some people, because of either their age or, or their, what they, their values in life, they're not willing to work 80 hours a week. And, and I wanted to say to those people, who cares? You know, who cares? You can live a perfectly rich life in America uh, 
making the equivalent of more than $100,000 a year, which is like whatever it is today, 150, 170, we did that once, I couldn't remember the number. Um, and that could be comprised of passive income if you have some, some uh, investments or, or whatnot. And the, the quality of your life really will be the same. And I try, in that book, I try to give examples, like from, from the other point of view, like if you, what is a house? What's a rich house? The house next door, I don't know if you saw it, this huge monstrosity um, was uh, the guy who built it, actually, he's a very nice guy. But it's this huge, ugly, you saw the house, it's just, well, you gotta see it, you gotta go out and look at it. My house is beautiful, let's admit it, it's a beautiful house. His house is just a big, giant, he built it for $6 million, which costs you $10 million today. It's the biggest, ugliest, showy. He just wants to show people how rich he is. And, and so he brings me in his house. He's a great guy. And he's excitedly running me around his house. He's like, you walk right in, and there's this huge gilded elevator right when you walk in. So it's like, you're like, oh, boy, is this tacky? Who designed this, Donald Trump? Or what's going on here? And so uh, I'm like, oh, and he's like, look at this elevator. And then I'm afraid he's going to say, isn't it gorgeous? But he doesn't say that. He goes, guess how much this costs? And I'm like, I was so relieved because I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be fun, you know? So I go, I don't know what, 10 grand, 50 grand, 50 grand, that's fantastic, high five, high five. And the whole tour was like, how much he spent on this, how much he, how much he overspent on everything. So that's like, you know, so, so what's that? Great guy. But what does all this show to anybody that has any kind of sensibility? The guy's like kind of a buffoon, right? And and you, I could you go down this block and I can show you a very little cottage that uh, the woman who owns it probably paid seventy thousand dollars for it. It's, it's worth a lot more than that now, but she's never done anything but take care of it and fill it with all the mementos of her life. And it's the most beautiful place. And when I go in there, I am admire her. To me, the quality of the house is this. The test of a beautiful, wonderful house is if your guest comes in there, who's not an idiot, and he wants you to leave the room so he can look around and investigate. He wants to see what your life really is like. But if your house looks like something that was designed by a decorator, like a TV set, what does that say about you? So the, the truth is, from every point of view, the, there's no reason to, to try to you know, get richer and richer and spend more money, and you really can so in the book, what I do, try to do is I try to identify all the, there's actually two parts of the book. The first part is I try to say, what do you need to spend to, to drive around the world's best car? So I happen to have the world's best, you know, one of them, the way I thought at the time. It was a BMW, 12-cylinder. Not the best echo footprint, but uh, I only drive it two miles away. I don't even so. have a driver's license. So okay. It's like you're speaking a foreign language. Okay, me. good. Well, anyway, uh, so this is a car that is better than, like 10 times better than a Maybach, but you can, you can buy a three-year-old version of the car uh, for like $30,000, and you can drive it for 20 years. I buy my cars, and I keep them for 10 to 20 years, and it'll cost you less than a Hyundai. So you're in a beautiful luxury car, so you get the luxury benefit even. And so I went to car, you know, one of the things that matters, the first and most important thing that matters is a mattress. You know, if you had to pick out one physical object that matters, it's your freaking mattress. I mean, you're spending seven or eight hours a night on that mattress. You should buy the best mattress in the world. And so we did the most extensive study of mattresses ever done in humankind. This is when I just started, got this idea of living rich. And I swear to God, we spent a year, we must have spent $50,000 researching mattresses. And um, 
Anyway, we, we, we have this whole report. And to this day, the Living With series first came out serially. To this day, when we still publish that as an essay, we get more response on that than anything else. So there is a potential it's for a you. third of people's lives. Yes, yeah, exactly. It rejuvenates you. It's good for the brain. So there's a job. Mattress newsletter. You know, mattress right. report. Did you get a? Did you get a memory? You got you got a mattress from the Hotel Benjamin. I remember reading. Yeah, yeah. Which they do have very good mattresses. Yes, they, they the hotel. And we did a whole. There's a whole study. And um, anyway, it, it, so the mattresses won, and we. So you can. Turns out you can buy the world's best mattress for you know a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. You can't buy one for two hundred dollars, but. Um, I, I, I don't actually remember what the numbers are, but it, it's a mattress you can keep for 10 or 15 years, at least. Or, or, so, on a, so the whole idea is based, of part one, is what are the most important material objects? What, do, what, how, what are the best? And what's the best value you can get in terms of cost of use? Not in terms of the price, but the cost of use. Because everything is about cost of use. You can buy a car that uh, is less expensive, uh, to a two or three year old car that's not that expensive, but it may not that be expensive because it's going to need a new this and a new that, and uh, it's going to be turn out to be more expensive. But it's just a cost of use. And so I, the first half of the book was analyzing all the most important objects in the world and how you can get the very best one for basically a, a, what I would call a middle class salary for somebody that's making $150,000 a year or a couple that's making $150,000. If you're making $60,000, $70,000 a year, I said in the book, you know, it's it's very tough. You're not you're not going to be able to live rich. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. You're not. You got to go read my other books and get your income up a little. Or more. pick two or three of the chapters to focus on. Yeah, you can still absolutely. Like I, I have a, and then I have a chapter on eating. You know, a, a wine. I mean, you can you can you know, wine industry is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I I love wine, and we actually have this is this is embarrassing. I actually have my own like. Sommelier for my house for my the wine thing out there, and every month he comes over and he restocks and then he gives Kathy and I a lesson in wine and so you know these are things you can do it's privileged things but I asked him to write for our our newsletter I said I want you to give people I want you to do two things one I want you to teach me things about wine so when my pseudo wine snob friends say things I can correct them and I'm going to give you one really good one right now. And when, he, when I said that to him, he was really excited. You know the wine, M-E-R-I-T-A-G-E. -E. You see it on menus all the time, right? I, I don't know. I don't... Uh, you don't, don't drink? Like, no. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't drive. And I don't all right, drink. edit this out. Anything with All right, anything let with me out there. You guys, anybody drink wine here? I drink wine. All right. Menu. Can you visualize M-E-R-I-T-A-G-E? -E? How would you pronounce that? Meritage. Exactly. And that's how everybody pronounces it, meritage. Uh. Well, it turns out meritage is, it's not pronounced meritage, it's pronounced meritage because it's an American term. It, was, it came out of a contest that happened in California, and it was, it's a combination of merit and heritage. So it's pronounced meritage, but there, there's very few people except Gordon, our wine expert, but 99% of the wine snobs, if you go out to dinner, they will say, well, let's try a meritage. And you can say, well, you know, actually it's pronounced meritage. So that's a great idea, actually, for a newsletter. So now he can have an alternative source of income. You know, every month I'll give you a new myth about wine snobbery. And uh, yeah, yeah, that would be $5 a great a, month. A, a great bonus. So he he's he's I told him thirty dollars for red, twenty dollars for white, and you can get all the great wine in the world for less than that. Even I mean, so so there's so when you think about what matters, you know, what are the the experiences in life that matter? 
you can narrow them down to get 80% of the experiences. And you can, uh, you know, if you're going out to, um, well, I almost had to write this book because my wife is the ultimate cheapskate. She just will not spend money on anything. It's not, we have a very happy marriage because usually one person makes the money and the other spends it. I'm the big spender, not her. So we, we never fight about that. But there's one of my protégés, um, uh, when they go, I, I kid them because every time they go into Paris, they stay at the uh, George Sank, which is a very expensive hotel. My wife will not stay at a hotel that that is very expensive. I mean, it's hard not to be an expensive hotel, but... So what we do, because I want to stay at the George Sank, so what we do is when we go, we stay at our perfectly nice hotel that costs a third the price, but we go over to the George Sank and we spend like a half a day there. And we sit around in the beautiful this and that, and we have, we have drinks, and we, you know, we have the best of the George Sank. And so you then, get the experience of the place. And I always take a photo, and I always send it to my friend who's spending like you know, $3,000 a day on his room and say, oh, we were just at the George Sank, and uh, just to let you know. So... There's, that's what I try to do. And the other half of the book is really about time because uh, living well, used to, we started the conversation by talking about time and time is really the most precious resource and it's all about how to, uh, how to figure out how to make the time that you're spending uh, uh, the most uh, pleasurable and the, the most um, valuable for you. And what's the most important idea you have out of that? Well, there's... You know, there, there, there's so many valuable ideas. It's hard to, well, the, the, one of the ideas is this, that, is that um, you know, you're, I, the way I do it is I say that there are, there are three levels of experience. When you experience anything, let's say entertainment or um, edu educating yourself, or I'm, I'm trying to talk about uh, life experiences in those terms. What are the types of experiences you're doing? And I say that, I don't know if I did it in that book or I did it in previous essays, but I said there are basically two levels. There's the, there's the experiences that enrich you, there's the experiences that are kind of neutral, and there are the experiences that deplete you. And uh, for, for me, um, let's talk about uh, watching movies, for example. There were, there were, to me, very clearly those three kind of movies. There are movies like if you go to Schindler's List, that make you a bigger, better person. You know, you know, you go to Schindler's List and you walk out of there and you're like, fuck, I gotta do something more with my life. I gotta be a better person. And those to me are very, that's a very good way of spending your time. And then there are movies that are kind of neutral. I talked my wife into seeing Up All Night, a Liam Neeson thriller. And it was, it was pretty damn good. It was ridiculous. I mean, um, you know, typical Liam, Neeson thriller. Somehow somebody related to him got kidnapped or hurt or harmed and he has to kill at least a thousand people before it's all done. But it was very satisfying in that, in that kind of way. But I didn't, you know, I didn't feel debased. And then there are movies that you go to, um, well, maybe porn for some people or movies that are just, when, if I, really, if I, when I see uh, Sex in the City, at uh -huh. the end of it, I feel debased. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm lower in the human scale of evolution when I'm done. So, you know, my whole thing there is like, you know, just be aware. Just be aware of... And the problem is that those experiences which leave you as vibrating at a higher level take more energy to put into them. We don't want to do that. We want always, especially when we're tired, we want to be entertained, we want to uh, do lower energy. 
But my whole thing is you just got to just get yourself. Just, just start into those type of activities. And then, in other words, it's almost like a practice to kind of find or to recognize when your body is getting enriched. Right. You know, a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, oh, it's easy for you to say you've been successful in hundreds of businesses. Um, but I want to remind that you started off saying, you know, you were at the hut in Chad saying this is the best place you're ever going to stay. And you were thinking that then. Right. And then you talked about the cottage down the block and how it's just the feeling you got in that place. And I think people forget that it, that really is so important. As a po The money and the businesses, you obviously get a lot of pleasure out of it. You get a lot of pleasure out of writing about it and talking about it. Um, and and it's, it's good to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But it seems like you initially had this kind of feeling of what is going to enrich me as opposed to debase me. Right. And I think that's an yeah. important. Uh, I think that's thing. something I got from my parents, and uh, my parents were a kind of academics, typical leftist, you know, uh, anti-materialist. Those academics. Irish leftists. Yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that there's a residue of that. But I mean, I, you know, I, 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 as I said, I wanted to tell those people that are reading our newsletter, and that read, they read everything else, all the other advice. And they say, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna become a millionaire. You know, I want to tell them that that's okay. There, you know, who cares really? I mean, there's still a good opportunity for you to have a beautiful life, to have a life that's uh, rich in in the most important ways, and to life that's admirable. All right. Well, Mark, you, I, I don't know which books to recommend, but Living Rich, Ready, Fire, Aim, Persuasion. Are you gonna make Persuasion public to everyone? Uh, yeah, one of these days, it's hanging around. I think, uh, I actually lost the track. The pledge. Yeah, you know, I can't, a pledge, yeah. The, seven the, years to seven figures. Wow, I'm very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Choose yourself. That's the only one I can think of. <laughs> Choose yourself. <laughs> Choose yourself too or something. Choose or? yourself, Guide to Wealth. Was right, my right, follow right, up. Right. She wrote Become an Idea Machine. Also, the number right. one book on entrepreneurship in the world right now. Well, written if, by you, her on if the you floor. send me that, is it? Is it? Yeah. Wow. Well, if you send me a copy of that, I'll send you all my other books put together. How did that sound? <laughs> right. That was, a, that was a good negotiation for you. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Mark Ford. Thank you again Thank for you. coming on the pleasure. show. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. Great. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.